Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. My wife and I, we love trying to find new places to eat. (laughs) We like finding a new restaurant or a food cart and seeing how good it is. There have been times when we find a place that we can't wait to go back to. There are other times when it doesn't necessarily work out very well. (laughs) But but that's the risk, right? Uh, That's the risk you take when you try to, to find a new place. The, the other day, Christy and I uh, decided to, to try out a new restaurant that looked rather interesting for lunch. We, we didn't even look it up on, on the uh, online menu or anything. We just went into it blind. When we got inside and looked what they had to offer, it was pretty obvious that this was more for a, a more hip and liberal crowd than, than we are. Most of the dishes were vegan and, and only came with, with meat in them if you, um, had, if you gave them an additional charge, you know. Uh, it, it was supposed to be a, a really healthy place to grab lunch or dinner. And we decided on two different bowls of food and, and sat down. And in looking at the receipt while waiting for our meal, we made the comment that this better be really, really good food for that price. Well, long story short, it wasn't. (laughs) The food was not terrible, but there was just not very much of it. And, And what there was was just not very good. Well, there are times in life that you experience things that just are not even close to being worth the price that you pay for it. That was the case with this particular restaurant, obviously. And that is the case with our policy surrounding the Paris Agreement and and global warming. The Heritage.org site uh, says this, one of President Joe Biden's first actions in office was to recommit the United States, to the Paris Agreement on Global Warming. The International Accord aims to keep global warming below 2 degrees Celsius from um, pre-industry levels, with the uh, ultimate objective of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, while the Paris Agreement's uh, climate impact will be minimal at best, even when assuming that the signatory countries follow through on all of their commitments, the policies implemented by the Biden administration to reach its intended targets will impose significant costs on American families and businesses. Americans are struggling under high inflation, uh, exacerbated by record high energy prices, obviously, and prohibiting and restricting the use of natural resources will just, and and while subsidizing and mandating alternatives, will only further increase energy costs. This is perhaps the greatest weakness of the Paris Agreement. While rejecting resources that meet most of the world's energy needs, the Paris Agreement has yet to address the growing energy needs around the world. 
energy is is essential to people's health, uh, and it's essential to their well being, their their economic opportunity, uh, and and has been a a key driver in the dramatic decrease in mortality and extreme poverty over the past century. If you think about it that way, when you think about how healthy energy is, right? I mean, all the things that that people are able to do and be more productive with because of energy. Well, to estimate and better understand these broader economic costs, the Heritage Foundation modeled a uh, theoretically uh, efficient carbon tax designed to achieve the Biden administration's uh, emissions reduction targets. So um, the, the administration's approach is likely to be a less efficient and and politically expedient set of policies. But what they did is they, they decided to go with, with, uh, with a model that would uh, estimate what's going to happen if we follow this route. Now, even with theological efficiency, they find uh, the costs of the policy to be staggering. The economy would, in aggregate, lose $7.7 trillion of gross domestic product, or GDP, through 2040, which, if you if you extend that out for a family of four, that's $87,000 that you'll be losing. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for, for a country. That's a lot of money for a family. And you'll be losing that if that uh, through 2040 if we follow this path. Now, the climate impact of these policies pale in comparison to the costs. Even if the United States and other organization uh, and, and, and others, like the Organization for Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, which is OECD countries, these are all the ones that are involved with this agreement. Uh, if they reduce their emissions to zero today, let's say that's all right now, they're able to, to zero it out today. The, the averted warning would be a meager half a degree Celsius by the year 2100. We're talking about almost 80 years from now. It would only decrease if, if you... If you believe these models and you believe all this stuff, it would only decrease by half a degree. Whether or not the the other uh, OECD countries uh, join the U.S. in meeting the Paris pledges, little if anything will be achieved in terms of modeling global um, and moderating global warming. Meeting the Paris pledges will, however, come at a very high cost. President Biden should work with Congress on a policy agenda that rejects symbolic but ineffective climate policies, reduces barriers to innovation and economic opportunity, and protects the environment. That's what he should be doing. The U.S. leadership on the international stage should be rooted in economic freedom. That's what I said, economic freedom. That's what makes a difference. Now, the Paris Climate Agreement does not set any legally binding requirements on emission reductions. Believe it or not, nothing about that is is set in stone or in law. However, each country must submit a nationally determined uh, contribution, that's an NDC uh, report, 
that outlines what a country will do to reduce, re- reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. That's the uh, GHG, greenhouse gas emissions, and adapt to a changing climate. Now, the NDCs are voluntary. The, the non, they're, they're non-enforceable and typically submitted every five years with increasingly ambitious uh, commitments. So, so it, basically, they, they come out with a report, these, these different countries come out with a report, with a report and say, hey, this is what we're going to do to uh, re- re- reduce uh, greenhouse emissions. Um, and then, they, of course, they don't meet them. And then five years later, they say, hey, guess what we're going to do? We're going to come out with these new goals. And, of course, they don't meet them. And it's just a, a, a never-ending cycle. Now, <clears throat> in April of, of 2021, last year, the Biden administration submitted a new NDC, believe it or not, <laughs> right, for the U.S. to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels. And it's going to be done, they say, by 2030. (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about eight years from now. Now, get this. Further, the administration set a goal of fully decarbonizing the electricity sector by 2035. (laughs) Yes. So in other words, our electricity would not be, be being produced by anything that produced any kind of carbon whatsoever. And to reach... Uh, economy-wide net zero emissions is also in there by 2050. While the administration frequently uh, refers to these as our goals, uh, Americans' representatives in Congress have not agreed to them uh, either in in the form of uh, advice or consent. So in other words, this is not an agreement. This is not a treaty, in other words. Uh, Congress did not agree to this. This is just something that the administration signed on to. Obviously, the prior administration, the Trump administration, got out of this thing because it was terrible. Uh, And then Biden said, nope, you know what? Day one, we're going back in. Um, Though other countries participating, uh, and and particularly developing countries uh, that are participating in this, have have made commitments without legally binding frameworks as well. America's targets likely will be binding practice uh, only through like domestic laws, regulations, and executive actions. So basically, we're holding ourselves accountable to this through our own domestic laws and, and, and executive actions and things, uh, and, and loads and loads of restrictions and, and regulations, of course. Um, extreme environmental organizations also are almost certain to sue federal regulatory agencies and states and private companies to enforce the Biden administration's NDC. And, and this, this should, whenever they don't meet, whenever we don't meet these goals, then it just allows these extreme environmental organizations to sue everybody. To date, the federal courts have adopted a variety of responses and uh, to, to the climate change related type regulations and, and, and so there's no set thing. There's one court will say one thing, one court will, will be in favor of, of these, these restrictions, and others say that they're just obviously garbage and throw them out the window. Now, to achieve a 50 to 52% reduction in global, uh, in, in greenhouse gas emissions uh, from two, 2005 levels uh, by 2030, which is what the administration has, has said they want to do, uh, they have... Uh, embarked on a on a whole of government approach. Now, what this means is that they they 
depending on on how you interact with the government, the government is 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 going after all these different types of changes in order to, to try to get to this goal. And so all the different levels of government have have something that they have to do. Uh, here's some of the things that we see uh, the government saying, this is what we're this is what we have done and this is what we are doing. Number one, revoking the cross-border permit for the Keystone XL pipeline. Yep, that was done on day one, which would have delivered up to 830,000 barrels of crude oil per day from Alberta, Canada to the United States refineries. How useful would that be right now that we see all of the gas prices where they're at currently? How useful would, have, would it have been in order to have that kind of capacity be able to, uh, to, to, to have here in the United States? They also prohibiting that they're prohibiting new oil, gold, and natural gas leases on federal lands and waters. So oil companies can't dig where they want to, where the oil and the gas and the coal, uh, coal is. Why? Because they're prohibiting that from being done. The federal government is prohibiting that from being done. They're reinstating Obama-era methane regulations for oil and natural gas production and distribution. So none of that. Uh, reassessing the social cost of carbon dioxide, as well as other greenhouse gases, making it easier for agencies to justify the cost of climate regulations. So if you're a, uh, a, a government agency, uh, you can justify the, uh, the increased cost because, hey, it's policy, right? These are our goals. Uh, they're commingling the greenhouse gas regulations for uh, new light, medium, and heavy-duty uh, vehicles with the ultimate goal of phasing out the internal combustion engine. Yes, that's what I said. So a gas-powered engine or a diesel-powered engine, their their goal is to phase that thing out. In fact, here in the state of Washington, they even have a date on that. It's, come, it's supposed to be coming up here in like 10 years or something like that. We're supposed to not be able to sell any kind of, of gas-powered engine. It can only be like electrical. Absolutely ridiculous. Now, here's another one. Signing an executive order calling for half of new car sales to be zero emission vehicles by 2030. So in eight years, this executive order is calling for half of the new car sales to be electric vehicles. That's just not going to happen. I just, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. I'm not Nostradamus or anything, but that's not going to happen. Uh, they're also saying that uh, proposing regulations requiring federal um, pension investments plans to prioritize climate and environmental, social, and governance factors over financial security for employees. So, so if you if you have a pension with the with the government with the federal government, they're not going to think about financial security is the number one priority, their priority will be environmental, social, and governance type of factors. <laughs> That's scary if you have one of those. Uh, also, proposing regulations requiring additional disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions and climate risk for public companies. Public companies. Yes, yeah, so we're not talking about the uh, governmental agency here. 
This is public companies they're talking about. Now, proposing dozens of energy um, efficiency tests and standards for household and commercial-grade products. Again, we we have in many areas, we have a housing crisis where housing costs are just skyrocketing. And, and what are they going to do? They're going to require more and more and more regulations because of this, obviously in, uh, increasing that number. Banning the federal technical assistance to other countries or use of taxpayer-subsidized um, international uh, financial of oil, coal, and natural gas products. So what that means is they're basically t- trying to ban U.S. banks from being... From uh, financing things around the world, whether it be for us and our country or for other co- uh, companies and countries around the world, uh, they want to ban the uh, loans for those type of things. And lastly, signing an executive order requiring federal procurement of greenhouse gas emissions, free electricity technologies and building materials. Again, just adding layer upon layer of regulation and taxes and 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 costs. Now, many of these actions fail to consider the unintended consequences. For instance, revoking the permit for the XL uh, Keystone XL pipeline would likely result in more crude oil, like we just talked about, delivering uh, delivered right now by rail or truck, or or increased Canada oil exports uh, to other countries such as China. So, in other words, since Canada can't sell them to us because we nix the pipeline, Canada just sells it to China, right? And how how good for the environment is that? Though Congress remains deeply divided on policies to restrict greenhouse gas emissions, uh, in, you know, economy-wide, it passes a $1.9 trillion stimulus package, which includes $30.5 billion for public transit and billions more for state governments that would uh, that could be used for climate uh, initiatives. Congress uh, further passed legislation requiring the reduction of hydrofluorocarbons. So, you know, like for instance, if you if you want to uh, have a refrigerator or a freezer that that operates uh, you know the most efficiently, uh, well, you can't do it anymore because it, it uses hydrofluorocarbons. Now, additional action could uh, could be on the horizon. The uh, Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, could um, you know unilaterally pursue more significant climate restrictions on existing power plants, which the Supreme Court is reviewing in a case um, of West Virginia versus EPA. The administration could uh, could consider a border um, adjustment tariff that would levy new taxes on carbon dioxide instead of uh, imports. Legislatively, Congress is considering several hundred billion dollars in tax credits and subsidies for investment, production, and consumption of wind power and solar energy and electric vehicles and other alternative energy products. Many Democrats have also endorsed a federal clean uh, uh, electricity standard that would mandate that 100%, that's it, 100% of America's power would have to come from emission-free sources by 2035. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. I mean, the, the fact that you would get no power uh, being produced by anything other than renewable resources. That's just not going to happen and not by that date in particular. Now it is a challenging task to, to credibly estimate the cost of climate, 
regulations, subsidies and mandates on, on taxpayers and households and, and the economy to achieve the Biden administration's Paris Agreement objectives. Increasing the cost of energy and narrowing the set of political uh, accessible sources of energy increases costs throughout the economy. As, as energy is needed to produce nearly every good and service, however, without specific details on legislation or how proposed climate restrictions would be implemented, we must make some, some assumptions about the details and the challenges of the policy. So, in other words, we, it, it's, it's hard to tell when, when these executive orders come down uh, exactly what it, it's going to look like, but we can kind of make some, some assumptions on, on, on what needs to be done, and particularly when it comes to our modeling. Now, to pr- produce their estimate, the Heritage Foundation used the Heritage Energy Model, HEM, uh, which is a clone of the U.S. Energy Information Administration uh, the EIA's National Energy Modeling System. So basically, the Heritage Foundation uh, used an exact uh, clone model of what the U.S. government's model is. Uh, the model s- simulates increased uh, in- uh, the, the uh, increase the value of, of carbon tax until the emissions reductions are met. So in other words, what the Biden administration is saying is that they're they're going to just keep raising the, the 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 carbon tax up and up and up and up until they can get to that 50 to 52% uh, reduction below the 2005 levels by by 2030. However, there are limitations actually on the model itself. So <laughs> the the model itself um, it's it, it's a little bit limited. So let me explain. To access the model's capabilities in, in uh, simulating the, the emissions uh, reductions uh, of the Biden administration, they, they simulated the impact of a variety of carbon taxes and, and resulting carbon dioxide emission reductions uh, to ascertain what the model could handle, of course. And again, it is worth noting that many targeted policies, subsidies, and mandates increase the costs of, and, and the inefficiency of meeting these these Biden administration commitments under the Paris Agreement. So by doing this, you're even hurting yourself in in in, in the ability to to get to where you you want to go. So they began with a tax of of thirty five dollars per ton of CO two emissions and gradually increased that tax, which resulted in emissions reduction of thirty six percent below that two thousand five level. The highest tax that the model could handle was a tax of $300 per ton of CO2 emissions, which resulted in 44% reduction in emissions with respect to the 2005 level by 2030. For perspective, the Biden administration's interim value for social costs of carbon is $51 per ton, not $300, $51 per ton. Carbon taxes of $300 result in model crashing. So they, they can only go to that point before their model crashes. Thus, although the $300 uh, tax appears to be the upper limit of the carbon taxes that, that the, the, the NEMS models can currently handle, the economic impacts lightly, likely underestimate the impact of the Biden administration's goals. So, so even though these numbers I'm, I'm about to present you come from this model, um, they, they're probably under what uh, what the impact is going to be because the modeling just can't go that high. 
that's how ridiculous this is. First of all, uh, an overall average reduction of more than 1.2 million jobs. So uh, 1.2 million jobs would be lost. A peak in, in employment reduction of more than 7.8 million jobs. So anywhere between 1.2 and 7.8 would be lost. Those jobs gone. An average of uh, an average annual income loss for a family of four. Uh, is anywhere from 5100 to a total um, uh, loss of 87000 over eight in an 18-year uh, horizon. So like, like 5100 uh, a year uh, over 18 uh, years uh, it will get you to the $87,000 lost per family of four. An aggregate GDP loss of over $7.7 trillion over the 18 years, an increase in household electricity expenditures uh, averaging 23% per year, an increase of gasoline prices of more than 2% a gallon annually beginning with 2024. That's just two years from now. And more than 90% increase over the current policy. As as is uh, uh, evident, the, the economic... Uh, reverberations of of re-entry into this Paris Agreement are manifested across the economy, ranging from financial services to telecommunications to various manufacturing industries, just just among others. Uh, obviously, the economic impact of of re-entry into the Paris Agreement is quite significant, and 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 the reason is simple: energy is a fundamental component. Of, of virtually all aspects of society and is essential to countless economic uh, interactions. Um, conventional carbon incentive fuels like coal and oil and natural gas meet, get this, almost 80% of Americans' total energy needs come from coal, oil, or natural gas. Almost 80%. Petroleum meets 90% of America's transportation fuel needs. Energy, uh, use, uh, energy used by uh, autom- automotives, um, by trucks, buses, trains, uh, aircraft, and ships. These are, th- th- this is, th- 90% of it comes from petroleum. Thousands of products are made with oil, coal, and natural gas for, for like feedstock even. Thus policies that increase energy costs increase costs throughout the economy. Furthermore, the models, the modeled impacts almost surely underestimate the true cost, like we were talking about. And, 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 and all the slew of regulations and, and implementations and mandates and subsidies that would additionally compound these costs, uh, it's, it's, it's just staggering. The Paris Agreement is an ill-suited mechanism to curb warming, uh, even when when... Uh, accepting the dubious premise of catastrophic ca- catastrophic warming, which on this podcast, we have dispelled that. I mean, you can go back, you can always go to uncommonsensepodcast.com. You can go to the uh, to the podcast there that we've covered this uh, and in the archives, and you can see exactly what data and, and science says about about this global warming theory. But but with with no enforcement mechanisms or or no uh, repercussions for failing to meet emission uh, reductions, 
countries can can continue to emit greenhouse gases even if you do believe in that kind of thing, according to a November uh, 2019 report from the uh, Universal Economical Fund. One, this this is what they said: "Quote of the 84 climate pledges, 36 were deemed sufficient. That's 20 percent of them. 12 particularly sufficient, or six percent." Eight particularly insufficient, four percent, and get this, a hundred and twenty-eight insufficient. That's seventy percent of those that signed the Paris Agreement are not doing what they committed to do. They're insufficient. China, for example, is the world's largest greenhouse gas emitter and is allowed to continue to increase emissions through 2030. Yes, increase. China's emissions are more than double of those of the United States. Yes, more than double. And more than those of the entire developed world combined. China's total energy consumption has more than tripled since 2000. And it is the world's top consumer uh, and, and producer of coal, second in oil consumption, and third for national ga- natural gas consumption. With per capita energy consumption far below the, the the OECD average, China likely will continue to grow as it looks both to its domestic energy needs and to international energy markets. It, it's, it, it's just, they're not held accountable. In, in heritage simulations, they completely eliminated all CO2 emissions from fossil fuels as an alternative scenario. So in other words, they say, well, what, what, what would happen if we just eliminated everything right now? Just if, if somehow we were able to snap our fingers, we we're able to eliminate all CO2 emissions from fossil fuels. What, what would happen to things? Even assuming that the earth's temperatures are highly sensitive to the global warming and, you know, emissions, eliminating all U.S. emissions would, would mitigate global temperatures by less than 0.2 degrees Celsius by 2100. Even if all the other countries and and economies eliminated the the greenhouse gases, that it's not going to change anything. There's no legal binding targets. There's none of this with, with these Paris uh, with this Paris Agreement. In 2020, 83% of the global energy consumed for power, transportation, and, and heat was met by CO2-emitting energy sources like coal, oil, natural gas, right? With the remainder met through a combination of hydroelectric power, which greenies don't like, they're trying to take out the dams, renewable energy technologies like biomass, and even nuclear power, which uh, places like China and things are building more and more nuclear power plants. Not necessarily a bad idea in my mind, but a lot of greenies don't like that. Now, no one knows what the future holds. Very few uh, expect the, uh, you know, the energy boom created by uh, affordable, uh, efficient hi- uh, hydraulic fracking technology um, to, you know, uh, to, 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 they, they didn't see that happening. And so when that, when the fracking started to get very popular, that technology uh, was developed, then suddenly that brought down our oil prices. But of course, now that we can't do that very much, uh, the oil prices have gone back up because of the Biden administration. Now, how the, the EIA's projections provide a more realistic and useful framework for policymakers than uh, in, in thinking about, about the future. The, the, U, the U.S. 
adherence to the targets of, of the Paris Agreement provides no more than trivial benefits, if any, really, and does not at at an extraordinary it, it does this at an extraordinarily high cost to average Americans. So it is neither reasonable nor laudable to push policies that have real costs to American families and businesses and further erode America, the American system of limited representative government for no environmental benefits. A better approach is the dynamic path that encourages economic freedom and growth. This is the proven path that has made people more prosperous and resilient Character characteristics that are necessary for whatever challenges the future holds. History bears out that there is good reason to believe in the creativity of people to resolve problems, the, their their innovativeness, their, their ability to adapt and improve the world around them. And conversely, little reason to trust in the ability of the federal government, such as you know, much less the combined signatories of this Paris Agreement to manage an entire overhaul of the energy sector and economy and the economy with it. Data from the the index of economic freedom over um, decades clearly shows the the economic freedoms go hand in hand with economic growth, which is essentially and uh, the, the, it w- is basically essential to the environmental stewardship. Now, contrary to the assertions and the ideologies driven by activists, economic freedom has proven real environmental benefits, such as more food for less land, reduced emissions of all sorts, increasing efficiency in technologies. In the, in the past century, extreme poverty, the normal condition for most people, of course, and for most of human history even, plummeted 80%. Thanks to economic growth and access to energy, global crop yields uh, of, of gain, gains increased over 200%. Deaths from climate-related disasters decreased 96%. As a, as a percentage of, of global GDP, damages from natural disasters have declined since 1990. Air pollution in the U.S., not to be confused with global warming emissions, has declined 73% since 1980. Even assuming the worst to come uh, of global warming, um, we, we, we see that, that nothing that we're doing right now is going to get us to where we want to be. Uh, it, all in all, even if you believe in the global theory of, of global climate change, the path we are on is not going to get us where, you, where we want. It it is paying a very high price in terms of life, environmental responsibility, and quality of life to proceed the way that we are. Let's address things in a way that actually helps and, 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 and is proven to work. Not, not increase taxes, but increase freedom. Promote creativity, not restrictions and regulations. It may not be the politically correct way to handle it because... You know, it doesn't give handouts to liberal friends and companies. But but if you are serious about the environment and the well-being of people, you will support things that actually make a difference, not create dangerous problems. You may agree with me on this. You may completely disagree. I'd love to hear from you on it. And, of course, you can always do that at UncommonSensePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Morgan